Welcome to Life Study of the Bible with Witness Lee, presented by Living Stream Ministry. These life studies explore every book in the Bible from the perspective of the believer's enjoyment and experience of God's divine life in Christ through the Holy Spirit. These messages unveil how the scriptures can be living and more than mere doctrine to man. Today, we bring you recorded excerpts of Witness Lee's original speaking, along with some of our own comments and thoughts. If you have questions, please send email to radio at lsm.org. Now, let's join today's program. The tabernacle of the Old Testament is a wonderful and vivid picture of God and His fellowship with man. It was a structure with two ends. At one end was God Himself dwelling in the inner chamber, the Holy of Holies, as it's called in the Bible. At the other end was the outer court where even the common people could come and go. As you entered into this tabernacle, the first thing you encounter is the altar of burnt offering. It no doubt is meaningful that this first item confronting man as he approaches God is the altar. Stay with us today for a rich and enlightening life study of the Bible with Witness Lee. This is a program furnished by Living Stream Ministry, and again today we'll bring you recorded excerpts from the spoken ministry of Witness Lee. In 1980, he conducted the life study of Exodus. We have Ron Kangas with us once again as we explore another marvelous aspect of Christ as seen in and through the tabernacle. Welcome back to the program, Ron. I really love the fellowship on the tabernacle. This touches me very much, and I'm very happy to participate in the fellowship on this marvelous revelation from the Word. Well, we've talked on many occasions before, Ron, about how this is a life study and how a life study really differs from a traditional or typical Bible study. These messages, I think, from Exodus probably demonstrate this as vividly as any that we've covered in the almost three years now that we've been producing this program. Today's message, dealing with the brass altar or the altar of burnt offering, is particularly indicative of this principle. Why is simply studying this matter academically and doctrinally not as relevant as looking at it in the way of life? and according to our own experience. Before I answer the question, let me just briefly say this so that there's no misunderstanding on the part of our listeners. Genuine spiritual experience is based on truth, and the truth must be properly defined, even doctrinally. So in no way do we dismiss the proper doctrinal or shall we say theological or exegetical study of the Bible regarding the things of the tabernacle in the 19th century, the great teachers among the brethren, they opened up, you could say, the doctrines or the proper teaching concerning the types. And we're not here just to repeat that, but to stand upon that, to go on, to emphasize the experience signified by the teaching. Now to your question, why is a doctrinal study not as relevant as a life study or an experiential study? Let me answer this way. Why is not reading a menu as relevant to the satisfaction of one's hunger 
as eating an item described on the menu. There's a place to study the menu, but it doesn't feed you. It is meant to be a guide. The whole point is to actually eat something, to take it into you. You taste it. That's enjoyment. You're filled with it. That's satisfaction. Then you digest and assimilate it. That's constitution. So I find the comparison apt and compelling. Isn't there a point where we go beyond reading, studying, analyzing, discussing, maybe even debating the menu, and actually eat the food? And furthermore, learn to prepare food for the starving brothers and sisters throughout the earth to eat. So this whole life study of Exodus, which is based upon detailed study and proper doctrinal discernment, the burden of this whole life study is the food, not the menu. So those who only want to read menu, ultimately, you may not really appreciate what we're doing. But if you're hungry and you want some real food, even solid food, just keep listening, not only to this program, but to all the other programs coming, and we guarantee you, you will be richly fed. That's uh, a pretty good word, I think, to uh, establish where we're at in this program. Here's Witness Lee. Carson Daughter, you have to know that as the contents of the tabernacle, there are two altars. One is inside the tabernacle, the other is outside, at two ends. The one inside the tabernacle, called the incense altar, is made with gold, overlaying the acacia wood. That is the altar where people got into God's dwelling and got into the very close relationship with God. Then the other one, which is outside of the tabernacle, is the altar of the burnt offering. This is the altar where all the sacrifices, the offerings, were presented to God in ancient time. And here, the main thing is the shedding of the blood. Also, there is a kind of burning. But this burning is for redemption. And that burning of the incense, on the incense altar, is for God's acceptance. Now, the other point is the two ends. No doubt, in this whole entire universe, there are only two parties. And one party is God, and one party is man. By what way the record concerning tabernacle was written? By the way, from the man's end, uh, by the way, from God's end. In the record, according to Exodus, what item concerning the tabernacle was written? The first, the ark. The ark is the beginning in the divine record concerning the tabernacle. This means the record of the uh, tabernacle 
begins from God. From God to a man. But a man comes to touch the tabernacle. From what end? Not from God's end, but from man's end. A man comes to touch the tabernacle, man touches it from the end of man. And the first thing man coming to the tabernacle meets is what? Is the altar. We all have to realize God's coming from his dwelling place to the earth, even to the cross, what was the main intention? What was the main goal? The main goal was to bring man to him. He came out of the tabernacle to bring man into the tabernacle. Even Colossians 3 tells us that our life today is hidden in God with Christ. He is the hiding God, not at the altar, but at the ark. We are hidden in God. Who is where? On the altar? No, but at the ark. So, he came out of the tabernacle in order to bring us into the tabernacle. Until we reach where he is. He went to the altar, that means to the cross, with the intention that we, the fallen sinners, could be brought back to himself, to the place where he is. Now, I believe you can have some kind of understanding. This helps us in experience. Ron, the description of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus begins with the Ark of the Testimony, which we know is the very place where God himself dwelt. From that starting point, it then moves out through the holy place and eventually to the outer court and the altar of burnt offering. The sequence to the natural way of thinking here might seem backwards, but aren't we seeing that it really matches the sequence of God's economy, even the order that we see in the Gospel of John, as you pointed out in our introduction today? Exactly. It seems backward to us because we have to proceed from where we are in our fallen condition. And after we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, Redeemer, and life, then we can advance into God. But the divine revelation begins from God's point of view and then advances to the human situation. And here I need to say something quite direct. Some believers just really don't have a heart for God's point of view. Their only interest is in what they think is their situation and how their problem can be met and how God can do something to make their life better. So not even in truth, much less in experience, Is there among many the proper desire to understand God's viewpoint, even though it's in the Bible? But we can be self-centered even in our reading of the Bible. And the book of Exodus, when it comes to the matter of the tabernacle, 
we have to say, frankly, is written from a divine point of view. It goes from the inside out. It starts with the Ark in the Holy of Holies and proceeds to where we are. Once we understand this, then it will begin to make more sense to us and we'll begin to go contrary to our natural understanding and realize there's something more involved here than just us and our assessment of our need. There is God's viewpoint and God's goal. Having said that, just a brief comment on John. We begin with the word in eternity past. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Then this word, which is God, became flesh and tabernacled among us. John 1.14. There is the tabernacle, the enterable God. Then in verse 29, the Lamb of God as the reality of the offerings slain on the cross, signified by the altar, so that we sinners may be redeemed, forgiven, and cleansed, and based upon our regeneration, able to enter into God, signified by the tabernacle, eventually to go step by step until we enter into God in the Holy of Holies and be where he is, so he can dwell in us and we can dwell in him. This is the sequence of God's economy. Having said this, a little P.S., both perspectives are valid. God's perspective beginning with the Holy of Holies and advancing toward the altar, and our perspective of beginning at the altar and advancing into God, they're both valid. My point is, we may be so occupied with the human perspective that we have no capacity to appreciate the divine perspective. And this ministry, being balanced, presents the divine perspective and therefore enables us from our human perspective to receive the divine revelation and the divine supply so that we, enlightened by the divine revelation, may enter into the divine building to carry out the divine economy. Brother Ron, as we pointed out at the beginning, there are two ends to the tabernacle, the God end, if I could be allowed, and the man end. And at the man end, we find the altar, and that's what we're going to find in this next section. Here's Witness Lee. The altar is made of acacia wood. Is the uh, altar a human being or just some matter? In other words, is the cross a person? Or just something. The real substance, the basic substance, the basic material for meeting the altar is acacia wood. And acacia wood, no doubt, refers to what? The humanity of the Lord Jesus. Signifies the man Jesus. This implies that the altar is a man. How could you answer? The answer is not so direct. Suppose you have the altar and you don't have the sacrifices. Could the altar itself save you? Suppose you have the cross without one dying on the cross for you. Could the cross save you? The saving element actually is not in the cross. 
as some matter. The saving element is in the person who was crucified on the cross. When you come to the table, do you eat the table? Actually, you don't eat that wooden table or steel table. You eat what? You eat what is offered there. So when we say the altar, we don't mean much. The altar itself. We mean what is offered on that altar and what is offered through that altar. Then when we say the cross saves us, we don't mean the cross used by the Roman Empire. We mean Christ who died on the cross. And this cross saves us. Actually, it is not the cross itself that saves us, but the very Christ, the very man Jesus who died on the cross for our sins. So, you can see in typology, the Lord used acacia wood as the material for the building up of the altar. And this indicates the real effect of the cross is not that cross, but that humanity, which is related to the cross and which is something crucified there. And this humanity is the same one as indicated in the ark. In the ark, it also has the acacia wood. The acacia wood is also the essence, the very substance used for the making of the ark. And this is quite meaningful. Only the kind of humanity that is up to the standard of the ark can be our substitute on the cross to save us. This humanity is only available from Jesus. Only Jesus has this humanity. No others has this kind of humanity. It's too high. So, it is typified by the acacia wood. That is the strong wood. The hard wood. The precious wood. Ron, this is one of these points that really, I think, draws us to love the Lord Jesus and to love his word. It is a bit deep, but I think if we fellowship this a little bit, it's not beyond the grasp of any of the Lord's seeking ones. Why is it significant that the acacia wood of the altar, symbolizing the cross, matches the acacia wood of the ark, which is a clear type of Christ as the testimony of God himself? The acacia wood signifies the uplifted humanity of Jesus. The ark was built with such a humanity, and only the Lord himself has this kind of humanity that can be the testimony of God. Now we see that the basic material for the construction of the altar is also acacia wood. This indicates two things, that only the humanity of Jesus is adequate to carry out the redemption required by God. And then the second point, which is closely related to the first, is that 
the humanity of Jesus is the standard for the accomplishment of God's redemption. There must be a humanity involved with redemption that is altogether the same as the humanity involved with the ark as God's testimony. So the humanity of Jesus is the humanity in the ark, and it's the humanity that was the basic material for the altar. And that reveals a crucial point. It is not the altar as a thing that is effective. The altar is effective because of the person who died there. And that person is signified by the acacia wood. We really need to cast aside a superstitious notion that the cross as a thing can do something. The cross really signifies Christ crucified. And Christ was crucified with a marvelous humanity that was fully up to God's standard, signified by the acacia wood in the ark. And because there was such a person with such a humanity who died for us on the cross, it is because of this that the cross is powerful and effective in our experience. Well, we have just a a brief segment left, and we're going to see that the similarity between the ark and the altar does not stop just with the acacia wood. Here once again is Witness Lee. The altar of the burden offering is spreading, but not too high. Why three cubits high? The height is not so much as the width and the length. The width and the length are bigger than the height. This indicates that the Lord's redemption is really spreading. It's really including. It is so spreading. You do have wider space to include more things. But it is not that high. If it is too high, we cannot reach it. No doubt, three cubits should refer to the triangle, the redemption accomplished on the cross was not only by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It was accomplished by the triune God. I just give you one verse. You got convinced. Hebrew 9.14 says, The Lord offered himself to God through the eternal spirit. In that one verse concerning Christ's crucifixion, or concerning Christ offering himself to God, that verse has a trying God involved already. Christ, the Son, offered himself to God the Father through the Spirit. You see the trying God there? That is the three cubits. That is the height. That is the standard. It is accomplished by the trying God to the standard of the trying God. Rook chapter 15. There you have three parables. The son was there as a shepherd, taking care of the flock, and the spirit is there as the woman finding the last coin, and then the father is also there to feed 
the returned son with the fatted calf. So you could see there to receive back a repentant sinner. All the three of the Trinity are involved: the Son, the Spirit, and the Father. They were all working together to bring us back and to accept us and to save us. This is the height of Christ's redemption. The height is built up by the triangle and according to triangle. This, I believe, is the real significance of the height of the altar. The redemption can be accomplished in that way by Christ on the cross, was by the triangle, by the Son, and the Spirit, and the Father, by the triangle. Well, Ron, a wonderful point to conclude our time together today. How about the height? Of the altar, showing us that the entire triune God was involved in redemption. We emphasize that the number three can signify a resurrection or the triune God. Here, the thought of resurrection is not fitting. The number three, when we're talking about the dimensions, signifies the triune God and points to the fact. That the entire triune God was involved in redemption. We have to be very clear in considering the Trinity, not to separate the persons of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Distinguish them, yes. Separate them, no. In all that the triune God does, all three—the Father, Son, and Spirit—work together. Redemption was accomplished by. Christ, the Son of God, it was the Son, not the Father or the Spirit, who died on the cross for our redemption. But both the Father and the Spirit were involved in Christ's redemptive death. We know from Colossians two that the Father was very actively involved in stripping off the principalities and powers while Christ was on the cross. We know from Hebrews nine that Christ offered Himself to God through the eternal Spirit. So, although our Lord Jesus was the one who died, He did not die separate from the Father and the Spirit. The Father and the Spirit, with the Son, were involved. This means that the entire Triune God was involved in Christ's redemption, and that is the significance of the dimension. The number three, indicating the involvement of the Triune God in the process of redemption carried out through the redemptive death of Christ on the altar, on the cross. To see this is very enlightening, and it issues in much praise and appreciation for the wonderful Triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Blessed be He for ever and ever. Amen. Amen, and that's about all we have time to utter today. Amen. Thank you, Ron. We hope you enjoyed this program. For more information on Witness Lee and Watchman Nee, please visit our website, lsm.org. Again. That's lsm. 
www.ocrc.org. Thanks for listening today.